Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Redeemer Church. Redeemer Church is located in Fate, Texas, and her mission is to share the gospel, shape disciples, and send missionaries into the surrounding communities and across the globe. We hope that this week's message will bring glory to God by building you up and results in you looking more and more like Jesus himself. Genesis chapters 6 through 9. I'll read selected text out of those three chapters. They won't be on the screen behind me this morning, uh, but they will be in a Bible if it's in front of you. And so you can turn there, whether it be on your phone or your tablet or a paper copy you might have with you. But we'll read some selected text out of Genesis 6 through 9 as we continue to work our way through the flood story here uh, in Genesis, early in the book of Genesis. Uh, considering what God has to teach us and different themes that emerge from that flood story as we look at it together. So the first verses we'll read will be Genesis chapter 6 verses 17 to 19. Uh, And then if you want to turn there, maybe it's flip a page over, it'll be chapter 8 verses 1 to 5, chapter 8 verses 20 to 22, and then chapter 9 verses 8 to 17. So beginning in Genesis chapter 6 as Uh, God had pronounced there that he would judge the earth through a flood. We'll pick up in verses 17 and 18 and then subsequently read the verses that I outlined for us there as well. Genesis chapter 6 verse 17. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And then in chapter 8, verses 1 to 5. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens were restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And then the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. Down in verses 20 to 22 of chapter 8, we read, Then Noah, after they had exited the ark, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And then finally, verses 8 to 17 of Genesis 9. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth that is with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. 
And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is God's word. Back in the 1500s, there was a Catholic poet who coined the term in one of his poems, the dark night of the soul. And whether or not you've ever read that poem or you're familiar with that, familiar with the experience of going through a dark night of the soul. Whenever it feels like the world is closing in around us and it feels like in those moments at times that God has forgotten us, that God has turned his back on us or that God has abandon us. And in response to that feeling, that sense, or that experience, the great British preacher Charles Spurgeon said this in a sermon. He said, who told you that the night would never end in day? Who told you that the sea would ebb out till there should be nothing left but a vast track of mud and sand? Who told you that the winter would proceed from frost to frost, from snow and ice to hail to deeper snow and yet more heavy tempest? Who told you this, I say? Don't you know that the day follows night? That flood comes after the ebb? That spring and summer succeed to winter? Hope then, hope you ever, for God fails you not." And in the text that we read this morning, these selected passages from Genesis chapter 6 to Genesis chapter 9, we discover the reason that God fails us not. And in the text this morning, I want us to see and celebrate God's faithfulness together. And I want us to see it through the lens of this word that shows up for the first time in the Bible, and that is that of covenant. And the first thing I want us to see on the pages of the text that we read this morning is this, is that the reason that God fails us not, even in the dark nights of our soul, is because God is a covenant maker. He is a covenant maker. Now that word covenant is an older term that we tend not to use much in our day, but it essentially means this. It means to make an oath or to make a pledge or a promise. We, you, now that word promise is familiar to us from our youngest of days because we make pinky promises, right? right? You guys remember pinky promises that you made with when you were a little kid or maybe that you made with your children or with your grandchildren where you locked pinkies and you swore a solemn oath to one another that you were going to keep your word. That's essentially what a covenant is. It's a promise where one person commits themselves to another or where two parties mutually commit themselves to one another. Perhaps the most familiar covenant to us in our day and time is that of marriage. Because in a marriage, a man and a woman commit themselves to one another through the exchanging of vows. 
And when they exchange vows, they're making promises to one another about how they will behave toward one another in the future. And they say things like this, I take you to be my wife or to be my husband, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish. I pledge to you my allegiance and affection this day and all the days to come. They, make, they commit vows in the presence of God and witnesses and make promises to one another. And though their vows, or through their vows, they're mutually committing themselves to each other. They're making promises for the future. And the reason that we speak of marriage is in this light, that it's a covenant relationship, is because Paul tells us later on in the book of Ephesians that marriage is a reflection of the relationship that God shares with his people and the way that God relates to his people always throughout human history at all times and in every place is through the making and of promises, the establishing of covenants. And while there are a number of covenants God establishes in the scriptures, the first mention of a covenant in the Bible is here in Genesis chapter 6. In 6.18, we read about God establishing his covenant with Noah to deliver him from the coming judgment. Now, it's interesting when you look back at 6.17 and 18, that the wording of the beginning of both verses 17 and 18, they both start this way. God says, I will. In verse 17, he says, I will bring a flood to judge the earth. And then there is a but in verse 18, which contrasts the way God's going to act towards Noah against the way that God is acting toward the rest of humanity. Because God says, I will establish my covenant with you. Right? So God says in verse 17, I will bring judgment and death. In verse 18, he says, I will bring deliverance and life. Now, this is the same God who makes these statements. And it's interesting, in the Hebrew language, the original language in which this text was written, both of these verbs where he says, I will establish, or I will bring, both of them are in a particular stem which describes causative action. Here's what that means. It means that God is the agent who's acting, who's going to cause both of these things to come into being. That he is going to bring judgment, he is going to bring disaster, but he is also going to bring deliverance. He's also going to bring salvation. God is causing both of them to happen in the text. And God says to Noah, I will establish my covenant with you. We have a hard time holding those two things together, right? God being the the source, the agent of judgment, but also being the source and agent of salvation. God essentially says this, Destruction will come upon the corrupt earth and its inhabitants, while deliverance will come to his covenant people, those that he established his covenant with. Now you read further in Genesis in the story, in chapter 9, verse 8, we read about God establishing his covenant with Noah, Noah's sons, their offspring, and all living creatures for all generations, never to destroy the earth again through a flood. But in both places, in 6 18 and in 9 8, I want you to notice something. When this idea of covenant shows up, it is in both occasions, it is my covenant, God says. It's my covenant. In other words, the covenant was not something Noah came up with. This covenant relationship is God's idea. 
Uh, he is the one who makes the promises. He's the one who takes the initiative. And so the promises are God's to make and then God's to keep as well. Now one more thing about this covenant. I want you to notice something in chapter 8 verse 20. This is why we read all these different selected texts. Because this covenant is an even though kind of covenant that God establishes with Noah and his children and their offspring and every, everything in which is the breath of life on the earth for every generation. See, following their exit from the ark in 820, Noah builds an, builds an altar and he offers some of every clean animal and every, clean bir- every bird as a burnt offering to the Lord. Now the text tells us that when God smells this offering, that it was a pleasing aroma to him. This burnt offering as the, the, the scents went up, right? A little, like a scentsy type thing going on there, right? As the aroma arises, it's a pleasing smell in the nostrils of the Lord. And in response, he says within himself, to himself, I will never strike down every living creature again as he had done in the flood. He makes this commitment within himself first. Now it's interesting to note that it seems that what moves God to commit within himself to never destroy the earth again is this burnt offering, a sacrifice, an offering that later in the law would be prescribed to turn aside God's anger from his his people on account of their sin. That this is what moves God to make this pledge within himself never to curse the ground again on account of man's sin. And then in 8.21 we read this. I will never again curse the ground because of man for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. Now essentially God says this. Even though man is not going to change. Even though The intention of his heart is evil from his youth. Now that word intention literally means to form or to frame or to purpose. So in other words, and and eventually it came to be applied to our imagination. So in other words, what is formed, he says, in the imagination of human beings, what is purposed in their daydreaming, he says, is evil from their youth. So man's not changing. Now listen, You say, well, evil from their youth. Listen, evil is a lot cuter when it's young than when it's old. Okay? It is. Right? So it's cute whenever a little girl manipulates their parents or their grandparents or their friends with a smile and their charm and batting their eyes. That's real cute. It's not as cute when a grown woman does it. It's cute whenever a little boy is wrestling on the floor with the dog and pulls its ear and the dog whimpers. Oh, no, 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 don't do that. It's not as cute when a grown man does that in an abusive way. Right? But So evil is cuter when it's young. It loses its cuteness as it gets old, but it's, it's, in its essence, it's still evil. The imaginations of the human heart from the time of our youth are evil. And God says, even from our, that that, that, that fundamentally doesn't change. But he says in verse 21, as some of your translations even express it this way, even though the imaginations of man's heart are evil from his youth, even though I will never curse the ground again because of them. 
So even though their fundamental nature is not going to change, this atoning sacrifice has moved God to promise never to destroy the earth again. Now, I don't believe that it was just this makeshift altar that Noah built and the sacrifice that he offers upon it that turned God's heart in this way. Because God stands outside of all space and time. And so whatever we see, we see in the moment. Whatever God sees, he can see from the span of eternity. And so God like all the other offerings and all the other sacrifices that are prescribed in the Old Testament. The only reason that God would stay his judgment is because he knew they were pointing forward to a greater sacrifice, an ultimate sacrifice, in which the Lamb of God would come to take away the sins of the world, and he would be our substitute upon the cross in our place. So God says, that will satisfy my just anger against sin, so never will I pour it out again upon the earth. Now, so long as the earth remains, he says, in this age, there'll be regular rhythms of night and day and changing of seasons. There'll be fall will give way to winter and winter to spring and spring to summer. There will be seed time and there will be harvest. I will never again interrupt that process with full-scale destruction. Now, this is not a promise that there will never be natural disasters again, because there are, aren't there? But they are local, not global. And the seasons continue, day and night. Because God makes a promise. And this is how God acts throughout the rest of the history of redemption. See, this covenant becomes a pattern for other covenants that God would establish. In Genesis 15, he makes a covenant with Abraham to bless him and to make him a blessing to all nations and peoples of the earth. In Exodus 19, he makes a covenant with the nation of Israel through the giving of the law through Moses. God delivers them from Egypt by his grace, and he says, my blessing will rest upon you as you obey me and live under my commands. In 2 Samuel 7, God makes a covenant with David, promising them... Promising David that he, David, would always have a, 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 a descendant that would reign upon the throne of God's people forever. And then in the Gospels, you have Jesus in instituting the new covenant as he brings that into the picture. Tom Schreiner, a scholar, one scholar wrote, wrote, wrote about all those covenants and how they come together in this way. He says, one of the fundamental promises given to Abraham that he, would have, it was that he would have offspring. But when we read in the New Testament, who is fundamentally the offspring of Abraham, he says? It is Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, who is the son of David? Who is the fulfillment of that promise? And of course, that promise given to David fulfills the promise to Abraham. Well, Jesus is the son of David, and indeed, he's the son of God. He's the true Israel. He's more than a human being, but he's not less than a human being. He, so he's the true son of Abraham. He's the son of God. He's the son of man. And he's the servant of the Lord of Isaiah 53. Which I think is very significant, he says, as well. Because we remember in Isaiah that the servant of the Lord is Israel. So all the promises, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises culminate in Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, so we see in the new covenant promise in Jeremiah, which is picked up in Hebrews and 2 Corinthians 3, and in the institution of the Lord's Supper, Jesus picks it up and he says that, that now in the new covenant, God has given his people a new heart, a regenerate heart, and that was not provided under the old covenant. The new covenant is not just a renewed covenant, but it's truly a new covenant. 
We no longer live under the stipulations and rules of the old covenant. Now that the new covenant has come. And the new covenant promises as well that there will be forgiveness of sins. And of course, the forgiveness of sin takes place through the servant of the Lord, through Jesus Christ, who died for our sake and in the place of his people to grant them new life. See, all these promises and covenants that God makes are ultimately fulfilled in and through the person of Jesus Christ because God is a covenant maker. Not only is God a covenant maker, listen church, second thing I want you to see in this text is that God gives a covenant sign. He gives a covenant sign. Throughout the Bible when God makes a covenant with a person, he establishes it, or a people, he establishes it with a sign. It's a visible reminder of that promise. Let me illustrate it again with marriage. Whenever a man and woman stand before all their friends and family and before God and they exchange vows, In all the ceremonies I've ever done, the very next thing that they do after they exchange vows is they exchange what? Rings. Right? They exchange rings. I'm trying to take this thing off. My knuckles are a little swollen this morning. They exchange these things, right? And whenever they exchange these rings, right, uh, every pastor reads a little something about what the ring symbolizes. It's how it's an unbroken circle made out of a precious metal, uh, uh, signifying the enduring and valuable promise that marriage is, right? And so they exchange these rings, and these rings are intended to be a sign of the covenant they're entering into as a visible reminder whenever they see that ring of the vows and the promises that they made. And also, so they would pay attention and act upon those vows and those promises in the present. Whenever they see that sign. They look down upon that ring. You see this in movies whenever a husband or a wife is being tempted toward infidelity and they, what are they oftentimes the very dramatic scene, they look down toward the what? The ring, right? Because they made promises. They made a covenant. It's a reminder of that. And every time God establishes a promise, He establishes a sign to coincide with it. In chapter 9, verses 12 to 17, we see the word sign show up three times. In verses 12 and 17, God says, this is the sign of the covenant. In verse 13, God says, the sign is his bow that he has set in the clouds. God says that when he sees the sign, he will remember the covenant that he made with Noah and all living flesh. He'll remember the promise that he made never to destroy the earth again through the flood. Now when we read, I have set my bow in the clouds, we tend to think of a what? A rainbow. Right? We tend to think of a rainbow. And I think this is right. I think it's right for us to think about this rainbow, but the word in the Hebrew text is describing a war bow, a war about a bow of battle, which symbolizes elsewhere divine judgment. So God is essentially saying this: I'm hanging up my war bow in the clouds in an act of mercy withholding what humanity deserves. That's what mercy is. The withholding of what is deserved. God says, I'm hanging this war bow up in the clouds. Up until this point, they never didn't have a rainbow. So there's no word for rainbow, right? But it's his war bow that he's hanging up in the clouds. And so this rainbow that we see is a sign or a token of God's mercy. 
Think about the rainbows that you've seen in your life. They're brilliant, aren't they, oftentimes? And the way that they stand forth, they almost sometimes just pop off of the screen of the horizon, so to speak, right? As they stand out against all the gloomy clouds that lie in the background, the threatening storms, the dark and ominous clouds. And that rainbow at times seems to stretch from one end of the earth to the other. In other words, encompassing all of creation, Everything falls under that rainbow that God has established in the sky from our perspective anyway. The rainbow appears also at the intersection of sun and storms. Where those two things meet is where we see the rainbow. Right? You don't see the rainbow when the sun is just shining brilliantly outside. You don't see the rainbow when there's nothing but clouds. You see it at the intersection of the sun and the clouds. But theologically, it appears at the intersection of mercy and judgment. That's where it shows up. Where God's mercy and God's judgment are brought together, the rainbow appears in the passage. Now think about this fact. Whenever the rainbow appears, it's not pointing down toward the earth, is it? The bow is pointing where? Upward. Upward. And as Sally Lloyd-Jones says in her book, the Jesus Storybook Bible, it's pointing upward into the very heart of heaven. So that God himself is the one who would absorb his own judgment, his own anger. Over and over again in this age, we're, t- we're told that God suffers for our sin. We're told that he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. In Psalm 103, verses 8 to 13, I read this text at nearly every funeral that I preach. The whole chapter, because it's beautiful, recounting God's blessings in our lives. It says this in Psalm 103, verse 8, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. But notice, when God sets his bow in the clouds, He's doing so in a demonstration of his compassion, of his mercy, removing our sins, removing our transgressions. It's his patience, his long-suffering, his steadfast love. And when it says he set his bow in the clouds, listen, it's a perfect tense verb. And a perfect tense verb means this, essentially, it's a completed action. Not something that's in process. In other words, in this age, God says, I'm done making war against my creatures and all of creation. I will absorb. I will absorb their sin in this age. And God gives signs for all the promises that he makes to his people. In Genesis 15, in here in Genesis 9, it's the rainbow. In the covenant with Abraham, it's circumcision. With David, it's the ruler who would be on the throne. And in the new covenant, it's, we would say it's baptism and the Lord's table. These two signs that he's given. You say, what does all this have to do with me? Listen, if, I want to tell you this. If you're in Christ this morning, 
If you're a Christian this morning, I want you to know that God is not looking down upon you ready to fire his bow and smite you out of his anger or his wrath because you had an errant thought last night that you did not control or an action of sin this last week that you think God could never love me because of this. I want you to know in this text, we, I want to say as boldly as I possibly can, God loves you with a steadfast love because he has chosen in himself to absorb the pain of your sin in this age. He loves you. He's not looking down on you in anger, but love. Not in wrath, but in mercy. But not only does God give signs for the covenant he makes, but I want you to know something, church. He also keeps the promises he makes. God's a covenant keeper. In chapter 8, verse 1, we're told that God remembered Noah. Now that word remember doesn't imply that God forgets. Okay? Right? It shows up often in relationship to God's covenant with us. And so when God is the subject of remembering, it often has this nuance of God turning his attention to or paying attention to those that he's remembering. Now, it also doesn't imply that God is distracted. Okay? That God can't multitask. All right? That he can't simultaneously keep the world spinning on its axis and keep gravity in place. Right? And simultaneously work in the lives of his people. He can multitask better than any of us. Okay? So what does it mean then that God turns his attention or pays attention to those that he's remembering? Noah and the animals and the rest of his family that are on the ark. I believe the key to understanding what this means is in the context that follows. Because in the context that follows, we come to see that God's attention is connected to God's action. God's action. God, when God remembers someone, he acts on their behalf. He breaks into the rhythms and regularities of their life for their benefit. And when you read, God remembered Noah, this covenant that he made to deliver him from the flood. On the heels of that, in, in verses 2 to 5, in Genesis chapter 8, you read this. God made a wind to blow over the earth that caused the waters to subside. That the fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. He shut the windows. The waters receded from the earth continually as he blows them back. The ark comes to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the tops of the mountains were seen. All of this God does because he is paying attention to Noah. And his attention always results in action. It's not that he's distracted. It's that he is choosing in this moment to act specifically on the behalf of the people, of his people, according to his promise. That's what it means when God remembers. Now let me ask you a question this morning, church. If you are in Christ today, partakers of the new covenant, repented from sin and trusted in Christ, there are moments in which you can look back and remember that God remembered you. I want you to think about those moments this morning. When did God pay attention and show up in his power and his might to act on your behalf? I can recount instances in my life in which I was in a very dark night of the soul. 
I've spoken about this very publicly before here in our church. Times in which I felt like God had abandoned me. God had forgotten me. God had turned his back on me. And God in the way that only he can showed up in power and met me in that moment and reminded me that his back is never toward me because his back was toward Christ on the cross as he turned away and looked away from the sin of the world falling upon Jesus so he could never turn his back on me if my faith was in Christ. His face was always towards me. And so in those dark nights of the soul, God pays attention because he's promised himself to his people. And listen, church, I can say this morning that I'm trusting God once again to pay attention and to remember, are you? Are you? Are you trusting him now, today, to remember you wherever you are? Whatever it is that has caused the storm clouds to roll over your life, I want you to know that at the juncture of the sun and the storm is the rainbow that God has set in the clouds, not only physically but also spiritually in your life to know that yes, you may have run from him in your sin, but his bow is not firing at you to destroy you. But maybe he's bringing discipline into your life to turn you back to him because his mercy, his mercies are new every morning. His faithfulness is great. He's made a promise and he will keep it. So what do we do with all of this? Let me give you an overarching umbrella to put three things under and it's this this morning I want to call us to celebrate God's faithfulness how do you do that let me give you three things very quickly first thank him for being the God of promises thank him that he made a promise to know and never to destroy the earth again but to be merciful and to meet us in our sin with his mercy. The fulfillment of that promise made to Noah, the fulfillment of that promise made to Abraham, the fulfillment of the promise made to David was all fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Thank him for being a God of promises and covenants and that he is faithful to them. Second of all, trust him to keep his promises in your life. Now listen, there are some who believe God for too much. I'm going to go ahead and say it. There are some self-proclaimed prophets who are promising people things that God does not promise in his word. I cannot promise you anything that scripture does not promise you. But there are many who believe God for too little. Because I also, at the same time, cannot diminish any of the promises that God makes through his word. I want you to hear Psalm 121 this morning. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. 
He who keeps you will not slumber. God is not asleep. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is the shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. The Lord is your keeper, church. He is your refuge. He's not asleep. Trust Him to be that in your life, no matter where you are. David Clarkson, a Puritan pastor, said this, and I love it. He says, the titles of God are virtually promises. When He is called a son, a shield, a strong tower, a hiding place, a portion. The titles of Christ, light of the world, bread of life, the way, the truth, and life. The titles of the Spirit, the Spirit of truth, of holiness, of glory, of grace, and supplication. The sealing and witnessing Spirit. He says, faith may conclude as much out of these titles as out of the promises. Because who God is, is who He shows up to be in our lives. We cannot God does not show up to be things that he is not in our lives, but he always shows up to be things that he is. And who God is is who he shows up to be. So trust him to keep his promises. And then third and lastly, worship him for his great faithfulness. Psalm 57, verses 7 to 10. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast, I will sing and make melody. Awake my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. Here's why the psalmist says, I'm going to do all of this. Verse 10, for your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. The psalmist says, when I think about your faithfulness, your faithfulness to keep your promises, it stretches from where I am all the way as far as I can see into the heavens, into the clouds. That's how great your faithfulness is to me. And all of that is because he is a God of covenant promises who keeps them. Thabiti Anabwile is a pastor It's a tough name to say. He says, how often do we praise God for the riches of his covenant with us? How often do our praises focus specifically on the covenantal nature of our relationship with him? To the extent we neglect this theme in reality today, perhaps it's because far too many evangelicals fail to read their Bibles with a covenantal understanding. He says, hence a personal relationship with God and God's many blessings in Christ get abstracted from the covenant promises and obligations that always determine God's dealings with his people. Given that we may only know God through his covenant with, in, and through Christ, praising him for his covenant blessings would seem entirely appropriate. And before we do that this morning, church, we're gonna do that together as we close our service today. But before we do that, I want to give you a little fuel for it. A British poet by the name of Malcolm Gite has written a number of books, and one of those he writes through the Psalms. 
And as a reflection upon the Psalms, he writes poems that come out of them to capture the heart and essence of those Psalms in the context of the greater canon of Scripture. And then I want to read to you another poem that was written by an author back in the 1800s called Covenant Blessing. I want to read these two to you as fuel for us this morning as we celebrate God's faithfulness. Malcolm God, as he reflects on Psalm 91, writes these words. He shares our grief and wipes away our tears. And even in this life, he shelters us beneath the shadow of his wings. Our fears and hopes are known to him. His faithfulness will be our shield and buckler. We can trust his constancy and know he will be with us. With us through the best and through the worst. I may be threatened by the passing harm of outward pestilence, but still I trust he gives his angels charge. And with his arm he shelters and embraces me. No power can separate me from his love. His name is my protection and delight. I pour my heart and soul to him in songs and psalms. And he will bring me through my darkest hour. Covenant Blessing by Francis Havergal. He says this, Jehovah's covenant shall endure. All ordered everlasting sure. O child of God, rejoice to trace thy portion in its glorious grace. Tis thine, for Christ is given to be the covenant of God to thee. In him, God's golden scroll of light, the darkest truths are clear and bright. O sorrowing sinner, well he knew before time began what he would do. Then rest thy hope within the veil. His covenant mercies shall not fail. O doubting one, eternal thee, three, are pledged in faithfulness for thee. Claim everything of God secure. O feeble one, look up and see. Strong consolation sworn for thee. Jehovah's glorious arm is shown. His covenant strength is all thine own. O morning one, each stroke of love, a covenant blessing yet shall prove. His covenant love shall be thy stay. His covenant grace be as thy day. O love that chose, O love that died, O love that sealed and sanctified, all glory, glory, glory be, O covenant triune God to thee. Celebrate him for his faithfulness, church. Let's do that this morning. I'm going to invite the praise team to come and lead us in song as I pray. And we lift our voices to the God of covenant. Father, we thank you that your mercies are new every morning. And as the author of Lamentations says, great indeed is your faithfulness. In so far that you swore to Noah, 
and to Abraham and to David and to Moses and to us through your son, the Lord Jesus. We believe that your promises are sure. We believe that you will always show up to be who you are in our lives. That you will never show up to be that which you are not, but always show up to be who you are. Father, may our remembrance of those times in which you have turned your attention to us in our moments of need, may they, in our current moment, remind us that you are faithful and sure. And give us reason to celebrate your faithfulness that stretches to the clouds. So help us, God, by your grace to lift our voices and our hearts now. We pray in Jesus' name. Hey, this is Pastor Shannon, and I want to thank you for tuning in today. I trust that the Lord has spoken to you through His Word, and if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I invite you to trust Him today. If you have questions about what that means, reach out to us through our website, RedeemerRC.com, and one of our pastors will be in touch. In addition, if you would like to partner with Redeemer in her mission to share, shape, and send, you can support our ministry by visiting RedeemerRC.com forward slash give. Now, this podcast is not intended to replace your active participation in the life of a local church. But tune in next week as we continue to lift high the name of Jesus through every paragraph, passage, and page of the Bible.